0: Amen. Hey, hey, is anybody out there excited and grateful for the reckless love of God? That was so sorry, but like I was watching college football games this weekend, like filled with hundreds of thousands of people, and if if I was on a college football team and I scored a touchdown, and that's all you gave me back, I'd be like, you know what? I'm not playing anymore. I'm going back in the locker room. All right, is anybody grateful for the reckless love of God? Whoa, whoa, are you kidding me? It's incredible. Wow, unbelievable. In conclusion, (laughs) you're not that lucky. Hey, I want to start off by reading some words that uh, God breathed and Paul put the paper 2,000 years ago to the church in Corinth and uh, most of you have heard these words before. You maybe read them, heard them in a sermon, or maybe they were even in your wedding. Um, Paul writes this If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have to get the prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Father God, we humbly come into the presence of a God who is love. And Father, I pray that your presence and your spirit would move among us, that we would somehow be able to grasp the magnitude of the love that you have for us. Father, I pray that each person right now is able to breathe out distractions and breathe in the wonder of the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, today we kick off a a brand new series called Love Is. A a few years back, researchers asked the following question to a group of four to eight-year-olds. What does love mean? And their answers that they got were broader and deeper than I think they expected. See what you think. Rebecca, age eight, when my grandmother got arthritis and she couldn't bend over to paint her toenails anymore, my grandfather now does it for her all the time, even when his hands got got arthritis too. That's love. Billy, age four, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Chrissy, age six. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries. That's tough, without making them give you any of theirs. Uh, Terry, H four, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Uh, Bobby, H seven, love is what is in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Nikki, H six, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with somebody who you hate. <laughs> okay? Uh, Tommy, age six, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. And Jessica, age eight, said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. Let I me mean, talk about some depth and insights and pictures of what love is. Now, love is probably the most misunderstood and misused and overused word in our world today and part of the problem is that that we use the word love to describe everything right you know I love my wife I love pizza I love football I love my country I love classic rock I love cooler weather yeah the word love gets thrown around more than a football does on the weekend so much so that it's kind of lost its power and its its meaning Now, the Greeks didn't have this problem because they had more than one word for the word love. They actually had four words. They had one word, phileo, which means brotherly love or friendship love. They had eros, which was passionate or sexual love. Uh, They had a Greek word, storge, which was parental love. And then they had the Greek word agape. Now, the word agape isn't found much in ancient literature, but it's all over the Bible. In fact, 92% of the time that you see the word love in the New Testament, it is the word agape, uh, which describes a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love of the will. It's a love that's not dependent upon there being anything lovable about the object being loved. It's a love when it's undeserved. It's the kind of love that Paul described for us earlier in 1 Corinthians 13 that I read. And listen, love is not just some of those things. Right? It's, not, it's not a buffet. Uh, I like patience, but I still like keeping that record of wrongs. No, it's, that's not how it works. Love is all these things. Just listen again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And next week, we're going to begin unpacking that definition of Paul uh, piece by piece, beginning with a message that love is is patient. Uh, But this morning, I, I, I want to talk about the unrelenting love of God. Because as Apostle John wrote in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Alright? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say we love, and the next line is yours, right? Okay? And we know we do this, right? We're going to do it with passion and power. You guys ready? Can we do this? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We love because he all of us. We love. Because he all of us. We love. And listen, here's the deal. Understanding and experiencing God's love is both the foundation and the fuel that enables us to love other people the way that God wants us to. Like it's what enables us to, knowing we're loved by God is what enables us to love others. Like knowing that God has unlimited patience with us that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy enables us to have unlimited patience with other people. And so this morning, October 13th, 2019, uh, I want to unpack several things about God's love. But before we go there, I, I want to tell you why we're doing this series. Number one, because there's nothing more important than Love. Nothing. And that's the point Paul is trying to make, right? In what I read earlier, where he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and the angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If you know, he ends that chapter by saying, These three things remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is what? The greatest is love. And what Paul's is saying is that without love, what you say, what you know, what you give, what you sacrifice, what you accomplish, and even your faith does not matter, it gains you nothing. And listen, somebody in this room I think needs to hear this. Your relationships are more important than your accomplishments. Your relationships are more important than your accomplishments. Amen? Again, we're doing this series because nothing is more important than love, and because nothing is as powerful as love. In 1985, the famous theologian H. Lewis said about love, the power of love is a curious thing. Make one man weep and another man sing. Change a hawk to a little white dove. More than the feeling, that's the power of love. You don't need fame. You don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden. It gets cruel sometimes. But it just might change your life. That's the power of love. You know, that was made for a movie that came out in 1985, which was Back to the Future. Who feels old, right? If you do the math, 1985 was a long time ago. <laughs> it was more than five years ago, right? More than five. And, and But think about it. Love does have the power to change people. Again, it can change a hawk into a little white dove. And here's the deal, that... that when you are loved by someone with God's kind of love, it changes you. And when you love somebody else with God's kind of love, when you display that love, it changes you. See, you cannot love that way or be loved that way and stay the same. Get it? Good. And love also has the power to show the world that we really are Jesus' disciples. He says, a new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have Say what, Jesus? (laughs) New command, I give to you that you love one another just, that's, those two words are, seriously? Just as I have loved you. You also to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, according to Jesus, the way that we love one another is our best and our loudest voice and letting the world know that Jesus is real and that we are following him. So because nothing is more important than love, nothing is more powerful than love. And third, because nothing is more needed in our world than love, right? In our communities, our relationships than a bunch of people who are striving to live out God's kind of love. It's what our world needs. As the theologian Bert Bacharach said, what the world needs now is love. Sweet, hey! Don't you cut me off, sister? I saw that. You cut me deep. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world? I thought someone at least joined me out there somewhere. No, not just for some, but for everyone. But the world does need that, right? Our world is messed up. And we need to love God's kind of love. It'll make a difference. Not, not crazy, angry posts on Facebook or Instagram, right? That's not going to change anything. It's just going to stir the pot, right? But God's love can change the world, and it needs God's kind of love. You know, two times the Bible comes right out and says that God is love. First John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in him, God is love. And all who live in love, love God, and God lives in them. And i got to be honest, you know, standing up here and trying in a few minutes to, to talk about the love of God, I find extremely intimidating. I mean, I don't even understand human love, so how can I even begin to talk about God's love? But I came across a quote from a really smart guy named A.W. Tozer. who was talked about the difficulty of trying to explain God's love. He said this, I can no more do justice to this awesome and wonderful-filled topic than a child can grasp a star. Still, by reaching toward the star, the child may call attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. And so I stretched my heart toward the high-shining love of God So that we may be encouraged to look up and have hope. And and that's what I'm attempting to do today, to call your attention to the unrelenting love of God, to stretch your hearts towards that love so that you'll be encouraged to look up this morning and have hope. Question, could you use some hope this morning? If so, you're in the right place at the right time. Because I'm convinced that despite my limitations, that the shining, reckless, unrelenting love of God will both fall and move among us beginning right now for those with ears to hear and eyes to see. First, I'm going to tell you that God's love is a love beyond all reason. You know, I I can still remember back to the day when each of my children discovered that three-letter word that all... Three-year-olds find an all-parents dread. You know what that word is? Why? I mean, literally, I can still hear myself saying things to my kids like, you can't eat the wax candle. Why? It's time to go to bed. Why? You can't throw the batteries in the toilet. Why? Stop jumping off the table. Why? You can't have candy for breakfast. Why? Why? Stop hitting the window with the broom. Why? You can't pee in the front yard. Be like me, always pee in the back. <laughs> Don't shove those little beads up your nose. And John Malone did. <laughs> Can you say "papoose" in the emergency room. Now now why do they do that? I think because it's fun to say, and I think in their little sinister minds, they want to drive us crazy. But also think because the answers were given, it doesn't make sense to them. But the dots don't connect, and as I read of and reflect on the unrelenting love of God, I, I find myself saying the same thing: like, why? Why? I, I mean, I, I think that's what David was saying in Psalm eight when he said this. He, he said, "Lord, our Lord, your name is the most wonderful name in all the earth." It brings you praise in heaven above. I look at your heavens, which you make with your fingers. I see the moon and stars, which you created. You're so big and awesome and eternal and holy and all-powerful. But why are people even important to you? Why do you take care of human beings? I mean... The love of God, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. The dots don't connect. Why would God be so crazy? Why does he give so much? Why does God continue to pursue such a rebellious and prodigal people? I mean, why does God choose to welcome, turn to, bless, forgive, and extend his grace, mercy, and love to people who constantly turn away from him, reject him, and ignore him? People who choose to walk away from him and live a life that like the prodigal son in Luke 15 is intentionally in a far off and distant land. I, I, I can, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It's beyond all reason. And, and one of the reasons it's beyond all reason is because God's love is, it's unconditional. And, and and the reason it's hard for you and I to understand unconditional love because most of us have just experienced its evil twin sister, conditional love. You know the love that loves because it gets something back in return, a love where expectations are placed on you that you can never ever measure up to. And I don't know, maybe you, maybe you grew up in a home like that. If you did, I'm so sorry. Because that is not love. Have you ever experienced conditional love? Have you ever loved conditionally? I mean, when when I say I I love McDonald's french fries, and I do, I love my car, I love chocolate, and I love Maryland crab cakes, it's conditional. Because if a McDonald's french fry started tasting like Burger King fries if my car breaks down, the chocolate's suddenly turned into onions. And if those Maryland crab cakes are filled with a whole lot more filling than crab meat, I will no longer love those things. It's conditional. Now, most of you know that I am a New England Patriot fan. You know, I'd find a way to work that in there somehow, right? Where's the picture? <gasps> <laughs> but, but here's the deal. I'm not sure that if the Patriots became the worst team in the NFL, how long I would stick with them? Just being honest, I know what some of you are thinking, hashtag not a real fan. But I gotta admit, it's a conditional kind of love. And sometimes I love people conditionally. I love them because they act the way I want them to act. I love them because they give me stuff that I want. I love them because they make me feel good about me. Here's the truth of the matter, we all have Love conditionally, we all have been loved conditionally. And the good news is God's love is, it's unconditional. It's it's beyond all reason. Two years back, I printed out every single verse in the Old Testament that had the word love in it. About 366 verses. And of those 366 verses, 204 of them are talking about God's love. Right? And of those 204 verses, 175 of those verses, or 86%, say the very same thing about God's love. That God's love is unconditional, that God's love is not based on who we are or what we've done, but rather on who God is, and God is love. 111 times in the Old Testament, Scripture says that God's love is unfailing. Could you use some unfailing love in your life this morning? And, and 40 times it says that God's love endures forever. Understand, nothing you could ever do could make God love you more than he loves you right now. Not greater achievement, not greater beauty, not wider recognition, not even a, a greater level of spirituality and obedience. And nothing you've ever done could make God love you any less. Not any sin, not any failure, not any guilt, not any regret. Listen, God loves you He's always loved you, and he will always love you. He just cannot help himself. And that kind of love is beyond all reason. And I don't think we'll ever understand it. Uh, that's why John said this. I just learned this in the last few weeks. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And, and, and that our two English words, what great are from one Greek word, "patapas," which means from what country? But Peter's saying, from what country, from what planet did this love come from? God's love is simply out of this world. I've never seen anything like it. There's nothing to compare it from. It is from another place. But listen, though God's love is beyond all reason, this morning... I would encourage you to stop questioning that and begin to accept it. I love what Erwin McManus writes. What in the world would happen if we actually began discovering the actual message of Jesus Christ, that love is unconditional? What would happen if we began to realize that God was not, in fact, waiting for us to earn his love, but that he was passionately pursuing us with his love? What would happen if word got out that Jesus was offering his love freely and without condition? Next, God's love is a love that delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Isaiah 62.5, as a man rejoices over his new wife, so the Lord rejoices over you. Understand, God does not love you out of obligation or duty. God's love for you is not an in spite of kind of love. It's, It's not that... Where God looks at you and he he finds out that you're kind of smelly and he, he holds his nose and decides to accept you anyway. Listen, you're not a booby prize and you're not the ugly stepsisters that God is stuck with for all eternity. God doesn't just love you because he has to. He loves you because he wants to. In fact, he delights in you. He rejoices over you as a man rejoices over his wife, his new wife. He loves you not because of what you do, but because of who you are. And listen, his love for you, when you begin to plunge its depth, will as Zephaniah wrote, is life kind of in turmoil right now? He will quiet you with his love, right? As that stressed out child in the arms of a parent, right? It's going to be okay. I love you. I'm here. I got you. I got this. And rejoice every single and that doesn't mean that God delights in everything you do, but the fact that you exist is a very good thing in God's eyes. In fact, he lights up whenever you walk into a room. I love how Lewis Smeeds puts it, he says it may be a very bad thing. It may be a very bad thing that God needed to die for me, but it's a wonderful thing that God thinks I'm worth dying for. Amen? It's a wonderful thing. Uh, turn to the person you your right and left and say, you're worth dying for. And, and, and now look at them and say, I'm worth dying for. <laughs> Which one's easier for you to believe? Both, I like that. Uh, David speaks of being the apple of God's eye. You see that phrase several times in Scripture, and it's based what happens when you look at a person at point-blank range. And when you do, you see an image, a reflection of yourself in the eyes of that person. When you look in God's eyes, you'll see what he's so fixated on, and God is fixated on you. David writes, Show me the wonder of your great love. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings." Next, God's love is a love that is for you. When we love someone, that means that we are for them, that we're in their corner, we're on their team, that we have their back. It it means that we want to see them realize their full potential and become all that God made them to be. And listen, the King of glory, the Lord of creation, he's not just with you. He's for you. God is on your team. God is in your corner. God celebrates your victories, and God mourns your defeats. And and he most definitely, regardless of where you are at this moment, mountain high or valley low, has plans, dreams, and thoughts, and intentions for your life. Check out these scriptures and hear them echo the depth of God's for you love. If you heard them before, hear him again. Because God's talking to you. Because maybe life's not going the way you think it should, because that's how it was when Jeremiah wrote these words. Life was kind of stinky. <laughs> Wasn't working out so good. And they were thinking, man, does God even care? God can't have a plan for us, because if this is God's plan, he is the worst planner ever. For I know the plans I have for you. Even in this hard time, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And Paul writes, for we are God's masterpiece. God's, what a painter he is, right? He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God is for you. He has awesome plans for your life, to prosper you, to give you hope, to give you a future, to put your life on display as one of his masterpieces in this world. Whenever I think about God being for us, I think of Romans 8. You've probably heard this. Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to this, in response to God's love demonstrated in Christ Jesus? If God is for us, what does it say next? Who can be against us? answer, Nobody. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How we not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's God's love, is the love that pays attention to you. Pays attention. You know, attention is one of the most powerful forces in the world. I think you know, as I think about it, this is hurt paying attention a lot, right? <laughs> you see people, you know, in their homes. Laying in bed at night next to their spouse. I, some of us saw that picture going around on Facebook, like our world, right? We're just, we're not really paying attention to anybody. But attention is powerful. Like a little baby gets that, right? When a little baby is laying in that crib and it looks up and there's a face looking at them and that, that, that baby sees that face smiling, that baby begins to know that, you know what? i matter, I count. Someone's paying attention to me. You know, we, we all need attention, And I love what John Ortberg writes in his book, A Love Beyond All Reason. He has a chapter called Love Pays Attention. He says this, one of the greatest miracles of life is that God pays attention to us. That is probably why the writers of Scripture speak so often of God's face. This is the hope of the great priestly blessing that God himself taught the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turned his face towards you and and give you peace. See, to to turn your face towards someone is to give that person your whole undivided attention. It's not the casual listening of a preoccupied mind. It's a statement that I have nowhere else I'd rather be and, and no one else I'd rather listen to right now than you. And that's the kind of attention God lavishes on us. But it gets even better. It says not only does God turn his face upon us, but that his face shines on us, right? And, and, and that picture there is, you know, you can turn your attention toward anyone, but, but your face shines in the presence of someone that you deeply love, right? It's the image of, of a mom and dad watching their child in maybe a dance recital or a piano recital, and they, their face just shines as they watch them do that. It, it's the shining of a bride walking down to, to meet her groom down the aisle, And that's the kind of attention that God is paying to you, even right now, where you sit. God is watching you, paying attention to you. He thinks you're so awesome. Have you ever wondered does anyone care? Does anyone notice? Does it matter? Is anyone paying attention? God answers I am. I am. Always have. Always will. God's love for you is a love that is unconditional beyond all reason, that the light's in you right now, who you are, where you are, that is for you, that pays attention to you, and that unrelentingly pursues you. The word unrelenting means that which does not diminish in intensity or in effort. I understand, as you turn through the pages of Scripture from the fall of man and the sin of Adam and Eve In Genesis chapter 3 to a wooden cross in a hill called Calvary, you you find a a passionate and unrelenting God in pursuit of a prodigal people that he so loves. And, And listen, 750 years before Jesus came to this planet to solve the sin problem, God's extraordinary, ridiculous, illogical, unconditional, reckless, unrelenting love shows up in full display in the life of a guy named Hosea. Uh, Hosea is a prophet in the, in the northern kingdom, prophet of God. And Now, now a, a lot of prophets of God are, are giving some pretty crazy and some pretty challenging assignments. Uh, but, but I dare say that Hosea was giving the most ridiculous, difficult, and embarrass, embarrassing assignment of anyone. God comes to Hosea and he says, okay, Hosea, this is your assignment. I want you to go out and marry a prostitute. Not a former prostitute, but a full-fledged, car-carrying, active prostitute. Say what, God? Come again? And so Hosea marries a prostitute, and her name is Gomer. Uh, a bummer of a name, right? And so he marries Gomer, and, and for a while, things are going pretty well. They, 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 they have a, a baby boy, and then they have a baby girl, and then they have a, another baby boy. And, and so for about three or so years, it seems like their marriage was pretty good. Until one morning, the prophet of God wakes up and Gomer is nowhere to be found. Like he searches the entire house, but she's gone. And instantly, he's a single dad with three kids. And I'm not sure of all would happen after that, but he no doubt had many long days and many difficult nights. But eventually, God comes to Hosea and he says, okay, Hosea, Here's the plan. I want you to go find your wife and marry her again. Boy, Hosea deserves a lot of credit. He's a pretty special guy. And we read in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, that the Lord said to me, go again, show love to a woman who's loved by another man and is adulterous, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And loved raising cakes. They turned to other gods and they love raising cakes. They were cakes used in pagan worship. In other words, they, God's people are enamored by the things of the world. And at this time, the nation of Israel was experiencing a, a period of prosperity and things were clicking really well for them. Things were going well. And a major theme for them was love. But, and they had three primary philosophies of what love is. Number one, uh, they believed that the love was something that can be purchased. Uh, Number two, they believe that that love is just about self-gratification. Number three, they believe uh, that love can be found or discovered in things, in inanimate objects. It seems kind of eerie, similar to our world today, doesn't it? Where the meaning of love has been so convoluted. Love ya, love ya. And listen, into this environment where people believe that love can be purchased, where people believe that love is only about self, into this environment where where people believe that that, that love is about things. Listen, that's not love. Into this environment, God says, I'm going to demonstrate to my people what love really is. Uh, One scholar writes that other than the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Undoubtedly, the story of Gomer and Hosea is the greatest expression and demonstration of God's love and all of Scripture. So Hosea gets his assignment from God, go look for her. What was that like? Understand, he's going to look for his wife in a place where men of God should not go. So, so he goes to that part of the town, if you know what I'm talking about, and he, uh, he approaches people who are obviously in that industry. Uh, have you seen my wife? I'm looking for her. Uh, no, man, I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen her in a while. And, uh, I saw her like a few weeks back, and she was a, she was a, a three, three streets over And so he keeps walking, and he he keeps asking. And remember, this is a very high-profile man of God, and people knew who he was. And and when he finds Gomer, do you know where he finds her? She's on the selling block. She's being sold in the sex slave industry. Now, most scholars believe that what Hosea walked in on was, was an auction. Hosea is walking in on an auction And that's his wife. He says, excuse me, sir, that's my wife. I don't care who you say she is. She belongs to me and she's for sale. And this is the price. I wonder what that was like for Gomer. Gomer. I mean, she probably can't even look at Hosea. Like, she never fathomed that he would come here and pay the ransom to set her free. I mean, does, like, does he have to outbid other bidders? Maybe. As it happens, he ends up paying 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. And when you add that together, he paid the equivalent of 30 pieces of silver, which was the price that was paid to redeem a slave in the ancient world. So, so, so Isaiah went to his unfaithful wife who chose sexual slavery over him, and he brought her back. Can you imagine the emotions? Can you imagine the pain, the embarrassment, the humiliation on both of their parts? And can you imagine Gomer feeling like, you know what, I'm, I'm unworthy. There's no way I can accept your love and kindness, not after what I've done. So Hosea says, I'll pay whatever the price is. Whatever it is, I'll pay it. Wait a second, Hosea, she's already yours. She's already yours. I know. But I'll pay it anyhow. By the way, I want you to know that you're already God's. The psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24, 1, everything in it, and all who live in it. See, you're already God's. Nevertheless, he will pay the price to get you back. And then Hosea, he, he brings her home, and, he, and what he kind of does is he, they renew their vows together in a way. Then he told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or, or, or be intimate with any man, and, and I will behave the same way towards you. I don't know if that's what I would have said. Question who, who is Hosea? God. And, and Hosea means salvation. And Gomer means completion. Who's Hosea? That's our God. And who's Gomer? That's me. That's you. Uh, That's everybody in this room, And, and the point that God is trying to drill home is that he won't stop, that he's unrelenting, that he will search the most despicable, horrible pockets on this planet to find you, to pay the price for you. Understand, there's no shadow he won't light up, mountain he won't climb up, coming after you. There's no wall he won't kick down, there's no lie he won't tear down, coming after you. Who's Homer? Who's Gomer? Me. Me. And, and Jesus is my Hosea. And he, he, he completes me. Understand, nothing needs to be added when I meet my Hosea. In fact, nothing can be added. I'm complete. He paid the price to redeem and set me free. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you. In Matthew 9, maybe you remember Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew joins him and they have this meal and he's having a meal with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors and the religious got all bent out of shape. didn't know, Jesus, why are you eating with such scum? Why are you eating with such bad people, such rejects? Why are you doing it? And guess who Jesus quotes? Hosea. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus says, I I I didn't come to seek seek those who think they're already righteous, but I came for those who know they're lost and they're already in a desperate place. Go and learn what this means. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jewish leaders who knew all about Hosea, who heard stories about Hosea. And Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm Hosea. I'm your salvation. And I will go and I will look and I will search and I will pay whatever the cost to get you back because my love for you is unrelenting. Man, I I pray I'm making sense. I, I pray that I'm getting across exactly what God wants you to hear today. Oh how he Loves you. Oh, how he loves you. His love is beyond all reason. You can't earn it. You will never deserve it. And his love, for, his love is a for you kind of love, a pay attention to you kind of love, a delight in you kind of love, And it's a love that will and is unrelentingly pursuing you. So so what? Sermon's done. Time to sing and eat some barbecue. So what? I mean, what, what, what should our response? I mean, seriously, what should my response and your response be to this crazy love of God? Maybe there's some in this room who, like Gomer, just need to, for the very first time, say, you know what? I've been trying to live my life without Jesus. (laughs) I've experienced nothing but conditional love. And to have this unconditional love surround me, I want to come know this God and have a relationship with this God, surrender my life to this God. Maybe that's you. And when we respond in just a moment after this song, I'll I'll be up here, come talk to me. And you know, we can talk after church. you can email me, Steve at the right? But God wants His love to be poured out over you. And maybe you're someone who just forgot how much God loves you. you surrendered him, but you kind of wandered off, and you're trying to do it on your own. And you're thinking you got to earn your way back. You don't. <laughs> you just got to come back and bask in his love. And I think some of our decisions need to be, gosh. Do you know how many Gomers are in this world? You may hurting people are outside these walls that need to know that there's a God who will love them and never leave them or forsake them. And maybe God has said to some of us, you know what? Get off your butts and go be Hosea. Go find some gomers. Go searching and don't give up. Be unrelenting to let people know that there's a God who loves them and wants to be with them. What we're going to do, every week we close with a song and um, this song is called One Thing Remains and and One Thing is Love. We're going to sing this song and after the song what we do is a response time and one of the things we do is we take communion every week at Maple Grove. We have a couple stations off to the side. And the way we do it after the song, we go to the stations. You'll find a cup. There's a cracker in the top, and the juice is on the bottom. And thanks for your help, okay? (laughs) Much appreciated. Okay, there's a a cup, cracker on the top, juice on the bottom. Juice on the bottom, cracker on the top. You know what? You're going to find two cups over there. And I think you're smart enough to figure it out. All right? I don't lose my track of where I'm at right now. There's a cracker there that represents his broken body. I don't care what cup it's in. Because Jesus died on the cross and his body was broken because he loves you. That's the, that's the thing, right? It's more than a cracker. And a cup is more than grape juice. This represents the blood that Jesus poured out because he loves you so very much.